Hey, see, I always get so stupidly hyperbolic, like essential American short story writer, you know, but she is. This is The Lonely Voice with Peter Orner from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. If you've ever read any story by Lucia Berlin, you know what Lydia Davis is talking about when she says that Lucia Berlin's stories just had to emerge, just had to be found or had to find us and be appreciated. Peter Orner first read the stories we're discussing today in a Black Sparrow edition of Lucia Berlin's stories titled So Long. They also appear in the collection A Manual for Cleaning Ladies, a collection that didn't quite enjoy success in 1977 when it was first published, as it did in 2015 when it was rearranged and published as A Manual for Cleaning Women and became a sensation, made a lot of best-of lists, and activated legions of new fans, even internationally. Reading the stories of Lucia Berlin is intense, with a pace that moves with suddenness and lingers for brief moments on beauty juxtaposed with ugliness. Characters want connection and to fill the voids in their lives. They want love, and sometimes they settle for something else that can lead to bad decisions, broken hearts, and addiction. Generally acknowledged are the autobiographical details in Berlin's stories, the alcoholics and addicts, the humor, and the heartbreak. Lydia Davis has long championed the work of Lucia Berlin, noting her awe of the natural world, the suddenness in the prose, her pacing, dialogue, characterization, and a romanticism that's cut off by realism. There are brutal elements in these stories, to be sure. Berlin is unflinching. She's also compassionate, depicting again and again the beauty that can coexist with human frailty, the tenderness that can twin with toughness, and the fullness of life that can be measured in sudden, small moments. Here now, Peter Orner and I discuss Lucia Berlin's Strays. And please stay tuned for a bonus chat about the story Step by Lucia Berlin. And I think with Lucia Berlin, it's an interesting case because she was really posthumous fame. That said... She was very well known in the Bay Area by some people for, for many years. Edward Dorn and the editor of this book, um, Stephen Emerson, who has done you know tireless work to make sure that this voice was heard. And I don't think people were listening at the time when they should have been. Somebody who was, could have been like a great compliment to the work of Raymond Carver was being published, but not, not known. But, you know, there's vagaries of publishing, right? We can't blame it on anything other than fate, I suppose, in some ways. So what you're saying reminds me of what Lydia Davis says in the foreword. If Emerson and Davis and others are championing this work, then the work has to stand up. Lydia yeah. Davis says, I've always had faith that the best writers will rise to the top like cream sooner or later and will become exactly as well-known as they should be. Their work talked about, quoted, taught, performed, filmed, set to music, anthologized. Yeah, and I mean, I would love to believe that. I don't, <laughs> but I would love to believe it. And we've said it here, you know, that it doesn't matter how many readers she has. She's out there and how great she is. And, you know, people who... People who care or people who understand will will find her. 
but how many people haven't we found yet? <laughs> and so, you know, yeah. I mean, that's why we just got to keep looking. And like, there's no Betty Holland. There's people that get resurrected. I, I just always get a little afraid of these like resurrection stories as if they're finite. I think the message with the resurrection stories like Lucia Berlin, Betty Holland, and, and others are that, you know, that we just got to be vigilant because we may be missing somebody. It's kind of exciting to think they're out there somewhere. Yeah, I mean, it's awesome, you know, and I, I mean, you know, any good library is going to have a book you never, you never thought you'd find and I mean, you never knew was, you never, you never knew you needed. That's why that's, that's what we do. Like, <laughs> that's our job. But I wish other people and then other people do too. And, you know, and so it's all good. But it's just like, sometimes they get hyped so much that they, that's almost to the exclude, like, it isn't as if Lucia Berlin cancels out the ones we haven't found yet not that she isn't absolutely to my mind you know i see i always get so stupidly hyperbolic like essential american short story writer you know but she is she's awesome so so yeah and i'm glad to have her and and i think you know because i just follow this stuff and i know you do too it's just interesting who publishes what when you know and godin david r godin published lucia berlin in her lifetime and well they didn't they black sparrow did and i i believe that then um godine picked up uh black sparrow's list so there you know there's some beautiful lucia berlin black sparrow books out there <laughs> one of which i stumbled upon myself and have so i wish i had it in front of me but i don't i have the pink beautiful pink fsg uh manual for cleaning women just a you know great great collection but I want to give a shout out to, to Godin because they published So Long, which also has these two stories. And I encountered these two stories first in that book. And So Long was published in 92. And I just want to say that just because it's relevant to our discussion, because the picture of Sir Berlin on the cover of the Godin So Long, uh, she has Berlin with this light blue eyeshadow that I think was the same eyeshadow that Angie Dickinson in the story <laughs> we're about to talk about compliments the narrator on Tina. I think sometimes Tina is a stand-in for um, Lucia Berlin in some ways. Looking at that picture, I'm like, there, there's that, there's that eyeshadow that blew that blew yeah. Angie Dickinson away. What is it? What is it? What is what does Angie Dickinson say about the eyeshadow? She says, "Where is it? It's such a great line." <laughs> Maybe I just, I just read the scene. Um, yes, please. So. Well, well, I guess we'll explain to everybody what's going on, but they started one scene right away, a take of a stuntman who was supposed to be Angie, Angie Dickinson driving down from the gym while a helicopter hovered around the radar dish. The car was supposed to crash into the disc and Angie's spirit fly away up into it, but the car crashed into the China Berry tree. Bobby and I made lunch, so we were walking in a slow motion, just like all the zombie extras were being told to walk. We didn't talk much. This is the, one of my favorite parts of the story for no reason at all. We don't. We didn't talk. Once making tuna salad, I said out loud to myself, pickle relish? What did you say? I said, pickle relish. Christ, pickle relish. We laughed, couldn't stop laughing. He touched my cheek lightly, a bird's wing. The movie crew thought the radar site was fab, far out. Angie Dickinson liked my eyeshadow. I told her it was just chalk, the kind you rub on pool cues. It's to die for that blue, she said to me. I think the movie is The Resurrection of Zachary Wheeler. Oh, really? Yeah, I was going to look it up. So can I ask you a question? Yeah. So what was it about strays? 
Why, why this story? I, I think it's how it starts. There's something about the way that she tells a story kind of um, slantly. I think it's only, the only way to do it is to read it. Got into Albuquerque from Baton Rouge. It was about two in the morning, whipping wind. That's what the wind does in Albuquerque. Just even that line, like whipping wind and then doubling back. That's what the wind does in Albuquerque. She does this kind of thing a lot. Like one sentence will say something and then another sentence will sort of kind of double back and, and you know, say something about that sentence. I hung out at the Greyhound station until a cab driver showed up who had so many prison tattoos. I figured I could score and he'd tell me where to stay. He turned me on, took me to a pad, a Noria, they call it there in the South Valley. I lucked out meeting him. Noodles. <laughs> that's the kind of thing. I lucked out <laughs> meeting him, comma, noodles. Like that, that's a, you know, I mean, you can hear, you know, it's one of like, you know, we've done, we've talked about Grace Paley. We've talked about others who have this ability to create a language that sounds as if it was spoken, you know, sounds like it was told in a bar, even though, you know, she had to work her ass off to make this paragraph as good good as it is, I think. Anyway, it goes on and it's great. That's really true. I mean, and you just feel her in every story that's so immersed in in wherever she is, in the rehab or in a barrio or in an, even in another country. She it just seems like she was so chameleon like that she could just immerse herself in those in whatever world she was in. I, totally. I think that's I think, you know. We did Dennis Johnson the other day and we, you know, all hail Dennis Johnson. We love the guy, but it, it seems like sometimes like if I'm, there's a more performative aspect to his work, I think, than this. I think that, you know, I, I don't think we have to, you know, have a fight about authenticities. Right. But it does, it does feel like, like she insinuates herself and, and I know she had a tough road, right. I mean, she had all kinds yeah. of, you know, addiction, you know, and, and that a lot of the stuff she knows damn well. But I also think that a lot of it has to do with the people she met along the way and depicts, you know, and in ways that I think are incredibly uh, compassionate, but also, you know, she's not going to sugarcoat. She doesn't sugarcoat in this story at all. You know, what happens with her and the, the, the you know, what happens with the narrator and the cook, you know, Bobby. So, I don't know. I think I think she's brutal. And definitely there's stuff like, you know, I couldn't teach her where I probably couldn't teach this story. You know, there's other stories where I, you know, you kind of cringe, you know. And I mean, I think that's what's so great about her is she makes you yeah. uncomfortable. In my notes, and I apologize because I don't, I no longer know who wrote, who said this, but it's in my notes, uh, unattributed, unfortunately. But it's, maybe it was Davis said, she can exaggerate but never lie. Uh, a person could not think he knew Lucia Berlin just because he read her stories. Fiction and reality are mixed up, but there are never lies. I like that that idea right. about the conflation, yeah. That is Davis, and I think she's damn right about her. There's this idea of the comparisons to Carver while then sort of saying, but Carver always edited things, and with her, things are much less, I think Davis said, rarefied, that there are stark differences, but... Of course. I mean, yeah, I mean, style like craft wise, stylistically, yeah, for sure. You know, I think that there's a more of a, a weirdness, but the, there's something more raw about her work, even if it is like not, you know, it's just cra just as crafted. It's just she sounds raw. I think that's my thought. Yes. Which is very interesting to me, this idea of 
that it's not just, you know, she she cranked these stories out and that's it. You know, take it or leave it. You can see that there's much more to it than that. Oh, yeah, for sure. And and we just, I mean, that's why we're so, you know, blessed to have this book. Every one of the stories in here is worth like a deep dive. For some reason, I don't know why this particular story hit me hard. And I think I think it has to do with the fact that you've got these people out at this incredibly isolated. So let's, I mean, maybe to set it up a little bit, we've got people are uh, who would normally be put in jail or prison for the drug problems that they have. They're sent to a rehab program. And the rehab program is out in the middle of the desert in what, uh, about 30 miles outside of Albuquerque in what used to be a um, radar site uh, mm -hmm. during World War II. It's been abandoned and they're sent, these, these addicts are sent out to restore the place. And um, it's a methadone a rehabilitation program. So there's the methadone comes in for them. And so, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a fairly progressive program for its time. And um, we're talking about late sixties, early seventies, right? The place that they end up is this is a place that's full of sand. The toilets are full of sand and dead animals. There's sand in the, you know, in the barracks, there's sand everywhere, you know? And so, and their job is to clean this up and, and, you know, it's, it's a tough, tough life. And the, they're haunted by this pack of roving dogs, dogs that people have let out into the desert, you know, former pets that are let out into the desert that become wild dogs. And there's a pack of them that roam around that kind of terrorize the um, the inmates of this rehab program. As far as dog stories go, if, if you know, listeners are dog sensitive, of which I am, you know, this is a, this is a rough dog story. This is not the the rehab. I think re rehab has come a long way. It actually sounds like for a while there, the first three months of the time that these characters are living there, that it actually does seem like, you know, it's working and that they're working together and they're actually putting this um, uh, place back together. Um, of course, everyone wants to get the hell out of there and eventually the narrator does. Well, she says it had been abandoned since then. I mean, abandoned. We were going to restore it. <laughs> we stood around in the wind, in the glare of the sun, just the gigantic radar disc towering over the whole place, the only shade, fallen down barracks, torn and rusted Venetian blinds rattling in the wind, pinups peeled off the walls, three or four foot sand dunes in every room, dunes with waves and patterns like in postcards from the painted desert. And then I'm like, what the heck? And then a lot of things were going to contribute to our rehabilitation. <laughs> it sounds so positive <laughs> after all that. Right. <laughs> uh, so just getting them off the street environment, that's for number one. Every time a counselor said that we left ourselves silly, we couldn't see any roads, much less streets, and the streets in the compound were buried in sand. There were tables in the dining rooms and cots in the barracks, but they were buried two toilets clogged with dead animals and more sand. Berlin's so good at so many things, like describing place so economically and so yes. oh, kind of like the dead animals and the sand and more sand. You know, that's the line, right? It's, yeah. uh, it's so, I mean, toilets clogged with dead animals and more sand. Yes. It's just there it is right there. You can totally, we're there. What was interesting to me 
after reading it a couple of times recently, uh, this idea of the dub doubling back. She doesn't do that there, not really. But then you could only hear the wind and the pack of dogs that kept circling. That has nothing to do with the dead animals in the toilets. But it's just such a very interesting juxtaposition. Sometimes it was nice, the silence, except the radar discs kept turning with a whining, petty, keening day and night, day and night. At first it freaked us out, but after a while it grew comforting like wind chimes. So now we know, get, get them off the street to this place, and this is what it's like, this sort of dominant impression of the sand and the perpetual noise. And then, of course, the major part, the other thing, was going to be honest work, the satisfaction of a job well done, learning to interact, teamwork. And then we find out what that work is all about. And then again, it's not it's not the what we think of as rehab, you know, the, that kind of sort of like hostile living where, you know, everybody has a, has a chore to do and it's all good. It sounds like punishment for part of this, part of the story. Yeah, and the purpose of these group is to, groups was to break us down. Our main problems were anger, arrogance, defiance. We lied and cheated and stole. There were daily haircuts where groups screamed at one person all his faults and weaknesses. We were beaten down until we finally cried uncle. Who the fuck was uncle? See, I'm still angry, arrogant. I was 10 minutes late to group and they shaved my eyebrows and cut my eyelashes. So no, this is this is a... This is brutal. I mean, this is a brutal place. And but Berlin's not wallowing in it either. It's almost like we don't have time to pity this narrator because this narrator isn't interested in pity. This and this narrator is telling us how something was and we're not there yet. But you know, I can imagine in other hands and you know, and for uh, for good reasons, you know, the memoir of the time of this place or whatever. It'd be a different, it'd be a different kind of story and be a necessary story, but Berlin. I don't think she's in a hurry ever. I just think she's she is going to zero in on what is what is really going to move us, and it's not the pity for the for the brutality of this that went without saying, you know, and that, yeah. I mean, that makes it more brutal. Actually, it's like a weird boot camp. I mean, it's part military boot camp and part you know the worst prison. This the daily haircuts where groups screamed at one person. It's it sounds it sounds just awful, and you know the idea of anger, sort of roiling in every single person who's there. Mostly, we just shouted what losers and fuck ups everyone else was. But see, we all did lie and cheat. Half the time, none of us was even mad. Just shucking and jiving up some anger to play the group game, to stay at La Vida and not go to jail. And again, and just she just sort of leaves it there and yeah. keeps going. There's no, no, what happened to your eyelashes? What what did you do? Right, right. None of that. Right. And, no. and then the anger part is like, you know, we just figured out fast that this is what we had to do. So we wouldn't, we could just subsist there and not go to jail. And I, I mean, again, I mean, we weren't going to talk about Berlin generally because I feel like not confident enough to do that even though i've read so many of these stories but i do think a characteristic is her not lingering you know again for for any pity she's she's got stuff to do and we've we've been there with the eyelashes it happened it was horrible but i'd rather be here than in jail and let me tell you about these dogs we were mad at those dogs lines of us at 6 a.m and one at 6 
outside the dining room, whipping sand wind. We'd be tired and hungry, freezing in the morning and hot in the afternoon. Bobby would wait, finally stroll across the floor like a smug bank official to unlock the door for us. I mean, just pause there. You know, like this is the cook. He's also an inmate. He's also, you know, in there for for some kind of drug crime. And he is, uh, but he's in charge of the kitchen. And so he's got the keys. Uh, he walks across his floor like a smug bank official to unlock the door for us. I mean, just like... It's priceless. It's so good. And while we waited a few feet away at the kitchen door, the dogs would be waiting too for him to throw them slops, mangy, motley, ugly dogs, people had abandoned out on the mesa. The dogs liked Bobby all right, but they hated us, baring their teeth and snarling day after day, meal after meal. And then they have names, Duke, Spot, Blackie, Gimp, Shorty, and Liza, his favorite, an old yellow cur, flat-headed, with huge bat-like ears and amber-yellow eyes. After a few months, she'd even eat out of his hand. Sunshine, Liza, my yellow-eyed son, he used to croon to her. Finally, she let him scratch behind her ugly ears and just above the long, ratty tail that hung down between her legs, my sweet, sweet sunshine, he'd say. You know, these dogs have been let out in the desert. I mean, there's a fairly obvious connection between the, the stray yeah. dogs and the stray people. And and but she isn't not heavy handed at all. They're they're you know, the dogs are, are out there too trying to live, trying to trying to make it and they don't, but uh that's how it goes. And the rest of the time is you know, sort of this rehab thing about um government money sending in people to do workshops. A lady did a workshop about families, as if yeah. any one of us ever had a family. Yeah. Then this guy whose favorite expression was, when you think you're looking good, you're looking bad. So they have a gym and a pool table weights, punching bags, and two color TVs. And they learn that this Hollywood movie company will come. And we learn in one little sentence that she has, she has seen this movie about 20 times in the middle of the night on TV. Yeah. At the beginning of the story... She lets us know all this happened many years ago or I couldn't be talking about it. And all these years later, you know, she has seen this movie with Angie Dickinson some 20 times in the middle of the night. They're having to get the place ready for this camera crew. We were clean and healthy. We worked hard. The site was in great shape. We got pretty close to one another and we did get angry. But for those first three months, we were in total isolation Nobody came in and nobody went out. No phone calls, no newspapers, no mail, no television. Things started falling apart when that ended. People went on passes and had dirty urines when they got back, or they didn't come back at all. New residents kept coming in, but they didn't have the sense of pride we had about the place. That All of that is in one paragraph. Yeah. All, all of that. And it's a, it's a world. I think, I mean, you know, some people, you know, like we talk about compression as if it's just something you do, you know, yeah. <laughs> and it, yes. it's not something you do. It's, it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's like anything else with this. It's like, it's an art of itself. And so she's a compressor artist in a way that, you know, like nobody else in, in what she's able to cram into this story. And I say that lovingly, you know, is remarkable this there's a character named sexy who's sort of a little <laughs> bit forgotten and then she has to bring her back in the story because she was sort of she came in at the same i believe at the same time as them but she was in solitary confinement 
I'll just read the paragraph because it's remarkable. Sexy's name was a joke. She was an old whore from Mexico. She hadn't come with the first group of us, but later, after five days in solitary with no food, Bobby made her soup and some bacon and eggs, but all she wanted was bread. She sat there and ate three loaves of Wonder Bread, not even chewing it, just swallowing it, famished. Bobby gave the soup and bacon and eggs to Liza, the dog. Sexy kept on eating until finally I took her to her room and she collapsed. Lydia and Sherry were in bed together in the next room. They had been lovers for years. I could tell by their slow laughs that they were high on something, reds or lewds probably. I went back to the kitchen to help Bobby clean up. Gabe, the counselor, came in to get the knives to lock them up in the safe. He did that every night. Anyway, it's just a movement. And the, we get Sherry, Lydia and Sherry who come in and out of the story a couple times you know, but are there. And then of course, Bobby, and then Gabe, the counselor's knocking up, locking up the knives at night. She doesn't explain why, because of course she doesn't need to. And it's, I don't know. She just, you know, she gives us what we need and she gives us what she needs to get to the, to get to the whatever, you know, I don't even want to say climax. Well, there is that because there's, you know, there's sex in the story too. A little bit of that, that doesn't even go that well either, but it's tender. It's in a way, in its way, like she's not ginning anything up. It adds this other layer of interest about what what goes on in this place. They were in their morning meeting and in comes this poor old sexy who's so hungry. She's been so mistreated. You know, she was in solitary with no food. You know, and I'm sort of in that moment of what, what how could this happen to somebody? And next thing I know, I'm Gabe's leaving locking up the knives, leaving Bobby in charge. Sexy doesn't matter that much anymore. And on we go. The story just keeps unfurling and unfurling and unfurling. Yeah. She and Bobby go out to drink coffee under the chinaberry tree. The dogs yelped after something on the mesa. I'm glad Sexy came. She's nice. She's okay. She won't stay. She reminds me of Liza. So then, okay, so then the moon, there's no other moon like one on a clear New Mexico night. It rises over the Sandias and soothes the miles and miles of barren desert with all the quiet whiteness of a first snow. Moonlight in Liza's yellow eyes and the china berry tree. The world just goes along. Nothing much matters, you know? I mean, really matters. There's these moments of interjections of great, great beauty, like the, you know, the moon rising over the barren desert with all the quiet whiteness of a first snow. And there's there's a... Uh, even the even the, the line you read earlier about the sound that the um, radar dish makes, sometimes it was nice and silent, except the radar dish kept turning with a whining, petty keening day and night. At first it freaked us out, but after a while it grew on us, comforting like wind chimes. It's just, you know, there's that, like there's this moment of patience and moments of, moments of slowness, mm -hmm. even in a story that is gonna, going to go by in what, seven pages? I always think about this idea of how Gabe was gone. It's nighttime. The two of them are alone. And they're, you know, instead of things sort of speeding up, things are kind of slowed in this moment. You know, you read about how addicts write about, you know, nighttime is the worst time and they're sort of coming out of their skin. And, and here it's, as Lydia Davis said, you know, she, Berlin was always in awe of the natural world and would write about that. And here she even brings in the dog Liza, moonlight in Liza's yellow eyes and the china berry tree. Like yeah. th suddenly those two things become 
like the most romantic things in the world. And the world just goes along. Nothing much matters, you know, I mean, really matters. But then sometimes just for a second, you get this grace, this belief that it does matter a whole lot. He felt that way too. I heard the catch in his throat. Some people may have said a prayer, knelt down at a moment like that, sung a hymn. Maybe cavemen would have done a dance. What we did was make love. El sapo busted us later, but we were still naked. Again, you know what the Lydia Davis, or I think it was Lydia Davis said that Berlin is, her writing is about suddenness, right? And And just one beat and another beat and another beat. You know, it's just like, he felt that way too. You know, he's emotional. Maybe some people would have said a prayer. The caveman would have, she goes all the way back to the caveman. But we made love and El Sapo busted us and, you know, on to the next thing. But I have to say the next part that it came out at morning meeting and we had to get a punishment. And then he says, you know what? I didn't even want to be with her. I just wanted to stay clean, do my time and go home to my wife, Debbie, And my baby, Debbie Ann, I could have dropped a slip on those two jive names. <laughs> right. I mean, but, you know, and but another move she makes, which is which is, you know, incredible to me, is that Bobby doesn't end up staying a villain in the story. They they get together again because he admits that he was an asshole. And and, you know, and they go from there because they're just trying to make it. And there is there is something to them. They both recognize the beauty of the moon and. And, you know, they're out there again a, a couple of, you know, a few weeks later, I believe. Um, so. But I do like that she says, that hurt bad. Yeah. He had held me and talked to me. We had to work so hard. There wasn't time to talk. I would never have let him know how bad it hurt anyway. We were tired, bone tired every night, all day. The main thing we hadn't talked about was the dogs. They hadn't shown up for three nights. You know, it was it was like this thing, like even in this hell that they're in with this poor, starving, sexy and, you know, all the rest of this stuff, this terrible place. You know, they have a, she's in awe of the of the natural world, of the landscape, whatever is there, the chinaberry tree, the moonlight. She has this moment. And, you know, this comes right after the world just goes along. It does. It does. You know, the guy denies feeling anything. And then, of course, we know, of course, he felt something. But what she's worried about is the dogs. And and also is, is how fa absolutely fatigued they are because they have been so mercilessly punished for what they did. The people and the dogs. Dogs end up getting into... Uh, getting tangled up with porcupines and they're in like incredible pain. You know, and I, I mean, I like this idea of suddenness. I, I, when they first get together, that scene, it, it, it feels patient. Also the language is sudden, the movement, the transitions in the story are sudden. Um, but I feel like there's a points of like lingering that mm -hmm. she does that where I am still kind of out there with, with her and Bobby for a little bit before, before the punishment, before, you know what I mean? Before it gets, where the story moves with the sudden swiftness that it does. And it does it, it, you know, she has this in incredible ability to move things for sure. But I, but I feel like 
within that ability to move, there's sort of like planes of sort of like, like you point out where there's like great beauty and great attention, you know, just because the story's fast and just because it's short doesn't mean it's too fast. The moon. There's no other moon like one on a clear New Mexico night. That really slows things down. Just that, just those two lines. The moon. There's no other moonlight. After that, the world just goes along. Nothing much. That really slows things down. And and to me, that's sort of like the, you know, the the little preface to what's about to happen between, uh, between her and Bobby. And then after all that, she says, I missed sexy. Oh, I forgot to say that she had gone to town to the dentist, but had managed to score, got busted, and taken back to jail. I miss sexy. Bobby, that was a lie what you said at morning meeting. You did so, <laughs> you know. And then, so right. it's like, wait, 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 what happened to sexy? But so it's that's we're back to that, you know, um, that that gallop through you know all of these different things uh that slowing down is gone it's it's over with then it's all this punishment and all this hard work we're so tired where are the dogs and miss sexy and then you know so it's then it's back to one thing after another after another and then they go into the meat locker and they hold each other and and they they make love again right. and yeah. then we, and, then, and then and then there's a movie being made. Um, <laughs> there's a movie being made. So, you know, I, I mean, there's a lot going on in, in this seven pages. And so the the part about the dogs, the dogs start coming back. We she, we've already noted that she's worried they haven't seen them in three days. And here here they come. They had gotten into porcupines. Must have been days ago because they were all so infected, septic. Their faces swollen like monster rhinoceros, oozing green pus. Their eyes were bloated shut, quilled shut with tiny arrows. That was the scary part, that none of them could see or make a real sound since their throats were engorged too. This is the most brutal part of this whole story. Well, maybe not. Maybe sec second to what's coming. Right. You know, these dogs are in pain. So in a sense, um, what Bobby does in the most brutal part of the story. And, you know, I, I, we reckon the story to say what happens with the dogs. Maybe we should just leave it. This character, Tina, who's had a lot of a lot of things happen to her. You know what I mean? And I feel like this this story um, is another thing she survives. Yes. Because what after that, which we're not going to reveal here, we're not we're not going to talk about here. Then it's back to business as usual. She has to turn on the griddle and start making breakfast. Everybody's mad because she took so. <laughs> they're back to their anger, and then this uh, movie thing. You know, there still wasn't any staff around when the movie trailer started pulling in. Bobby's back helping her make helping with lunch. And that's the pickle relish line that you read before, and I, I don't, I don't imagine we want to spoil what happens at the, what's said at the end. I mean, wait, you know, she gets away, well, kinda, you know, but we kind of well, know. Yeah, I mean, she gets away. You know, she, she, she's, uh, she's, she's 
you know, very uh, wily and she's going to get off this, off yeah. this, uh, off this base. And, and she does. And she, um, you know, she goes to Albuquerque and, uh, you know, which wasn't a great place to begin with. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but that's where she's going to go back. And that's where she started. And, you know, the story is, is, um, is a circular one that, that, you know, that she ends up rolling into Albuquerque where she shouldn't be and doesn't want to be, and then has to escape back to Albuquerque. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but again, I think it's like, it's, it's just about endurance. And I think that, there, I mean, there's something so, you, you just want to, you know, you want to root for her characters always. I mean, that's how I feel. I, I feel like everyone in the story, even yeah. Bob, you know, was a coward and, some key moments but also sort of heroic and awful in others uh, heroic in the sense that he does something nobody else would have had the guts or strength to do but maybe had to do i mean maybe that's a difference in berlin between other people that i can't recall a character of hers that even no matter how brutal i mean i'm sure there's exceptions to this but th that you're not sort of kind of realizing is sort of like has a certain humanity to that person and Berlin yeah. knows that no matter how many mistakes you make, you know, you're still worthy of that. And that's, that's, I mean, that's kind of how I feel that with the upshot of this one for me. And I thought, and it's not like it's so on the nose, like, you know, like there's so much like the stray dogs, but kind of, and it, I feel like she's just exhausted every conceivable thing to endure here including the making of a movie of all things and there's really nothing left to do but what she does i think yeah and i mean i think this is wonderful i don't know if doubling back is even the right way of putting it but uh so uh you know the gaffer whatever that is says uh you know where's the nearest bar and she's like she could have set up the road towards gallup but she tells him it's in albuquerque so she can get to albuquerque and he, you know, and they hump, they hop in his truck and go. And then mm -hmm. there's ram crash bang. Good God, what was that? He asked a cattle guard. Jesus, this is sure one godforsaken place. We finally hit the highway. It was great. The sound of tires on the cement, the wind blowing in, semis, bumper stickers, kids fighting in the back seats. Route sixty six. Again, these sort of like celebrations of sort of you know very very ordinary things. There's no kids in the car. She's she's projecting outward. To, to the people in the cars on the highway that they've now finally gotten to, which is, you know, which is, she's out of there. You know, she's leaving friends behind. And this character, I think, is always leaving friends behind. And yeah. that's something, you know, that, that um, that's part of the survival. I think she wouldn't, have, you know, she doesn't, she's got to keep moving, this character. Strays is a story by Lucia Berlin. Find it in the collection, A Manual for Cleaning Women. And don't go away. Peter Orner and I discuss another story by Lucia Berlin. The story, Step. Probably is my favorite of hers, actually. I love this story. This story just, like, I read, I read it all the time. I just read it. You know, I, I, you know it's just a group of people in, a, in the West Oakland detox who are watching a, a boxing match on TV. But it's just so... I don't know. There's a, again, this sort of like beauty in the camaraderie. Like she, like, you know, they talk, she talks about as if they're kind of, you know, they're having a kid's sleepover. It's cold in this place, which, you know, people forget. 
about um, Oakland and San Francisco and how cold it can be. And so it's cold and they're all sort of just huddled together and they're uh, like preschool kids at nap time. And then she has this line that's so kind of unlike Berlin, but that isn't true because Berlin, there's no like Berlin. She just throws in a, a metaphor like this. She said, or, or, or people in Henry Moore drawings of people in bomb, bomb shelters. That's what they're all huddled together kind of reminds her of. And then on the TV, Orson Welles says, we will sell no wine before it's time. Bobo laughed. It's time, brother. It's time. <laughs> and so, and then, and, you know, then, then the story has only a page and a half to go. And which is the, um, which is what happens uh, in, the, in the boxing match itself, but they still have to get through cheaper by the dozen. It was almost over. Clifton Webb died and Myrna Loy went to college. <laughs> Willie said he liked, and then and then it's back to the people who are watching. Willie said he had liked it in Europe because white people were ugly there. Carlotta didn't know what he meant, then realized that the only people solitary drunks ever see are on television. And then this incredible shift without transition to Carlotta's point of view. At three in the morning, she would wait to see Jack the Ripper for used options, slashing them prices, just hacking and hewing. That's probably my favorite line in the whole story. That sort of like seamless movement from empathy towards Willie, who's, he's like, he likes it in Europe because the white people are ugly there. And then she, she's like, why is he saying that? There's ugly, there's white, there's a ugly <laughs> white people in Oakland. And then she's like, oh no, the only, only people, uh, uh, white, the only people solitary drunk see her on television. And then she thinks of herself watching television. <laughs> At three in the morning, she would wait to see Jack the Ripper for used options. I don't know. Just something about that. And at this point, the boxing match hasn't even started yet. And I, I, I find interesting the, that they're behind this this low wall, like it's another another ring. Yeah, totally. The, the kind of the architecture of the of the like the it's called the pit. And, yeah. and they're watching TV and like this kind of I mean, I think of like, like almost like a Brady Bunch kind of like. I don't know, like city, like a like a family room kind of thing where you yeah. like in the in the you know, it's sunken. The counselors kind of look over the side at them like they're you know almost like they're zoo animals in the in the watching the the, the TV. And the yeah. counselors check in. Milton checks in every once in a while. He's like, you know, of course Sugar Ray is going to win this. You know, there's no there's no there's no possibility that Sugar Ray Leonard is going to get beaten by um, Benitez. So Oprah Benitez has no chance against Sugar Ray Leonard. And, you know, this is an era I remember. Sugar Ray Leonard was used to phenomenal boxer. But Benitez hangs in there, hangs in there for almost, I believe, till the end of the fight. He's still standing. All the men have their money on Sugar Ray. Yeah. And the, the next paragraph, Carlotta was for Benitez. Yeah. I mean, we want to talk about that. You know, Carlotta's... You know, she's for the underdog, and you she's know, the <laughs> and it's not just you likes them pretty boys, Mama. Benitez was pretty with fine bones, a dapper mustache. He weighed one hundred and forty-four pounds. Yeah, and he had won his first championship at seventeen. You know, she, I'm sure she's not a, not somebody who follows boxing, but she was for Benitez, right? And everybody else in the world maybe just about was for sugar ray so um, not everybody in puerto rico though no man not in puerto rico <laughs> no. 
So, you know, and I, I mean, I think the description of people watching a boxing match here is just so phenomenal. I mean, and she nails it. In the third round, Leonard's quick hook knocked Benitez to the ground. He was up in a second with a childlike smile, embarrassed. And then she goes in his voice. I didn't mean for that to happen to me. At that moment, the men in the pit began to want him to win. It's a, you know, a moment where there's a shift and you realize, oh, damn, you know, this, <laughs> this guy is not going down. He's, 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 he's going to stand there and get pummeled. Um, and then it becomes a story about far more than, than, you know, than these two men in the boxing ring. No one moved, not even during the commercials. Sam rolled cigarettes all through the fight, passed them on. Milton came up to the ledge of the pit during the sixth round, just as Benitez took a blow to the forehead, his only mark in the fight. Milton saw the blood reflected in everyone's eyes and their sweat figures. You'd all be back in a loser, he said. So he realizes that everybody shifted. Quiet, round eight. Come on, baby, don't you go down. And then they're out outwardly rooting for him. They weren't asking, though, for Benitez to win, just to stay in the fight. He did. He stayed in. He, he retreated in the ninth. He retreated in the ninth behind a jab. Then a left hook drove him into the ropes, and a right knocked out his mouthpiece. Round 10, round 11, round 12, round 13, round 14, he stayed in. No one in the pit spoke. Sam had fallen asleep. The bell rang for the last round. The arena was so quiet, you could hear Sugar Ray Leonard whisper, oh my God, he is still standing. But Benitez's right knee touched the canvas briefly, like a Catholic leaving a pew. The slightest deference that meant the fight was over, he had lost. Carlotta whispered, God, please help me. If there's a, a textbook biblical example of how to write a story, <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it, it the, the, the moment when, when, when it's even, you know, Sugar Ray Leonard gets one of the best lines in the story. And, you know, I never, I, I, I've always resisted checking if this is true. So I still don't want to know, but mm -hmm. Sugar Ray went, Leonard whispers, Oh my God, he's still standing. You know, she just can't believe it. And then, and then Benita's, you know, um concedes uh touching his knee to the canvas just enough briefly like a catholic leaving a pew and then carlotta whispers not god help him but god help me and there's something about that that like i think it's why i keep reading the story because i don't necessarily know what is meant by her seeing that and and, and and having the response to be, God help me, as if, you know, I don't know. You know, I sometimes I think, well, she's going to bow out too, or she's going to, or how do you hang in there? How do you do what he just did? How do you take that abuse and keep standing? And then so gracefully, so gracefully end it. I don't know. I, I don't know what's meant here, but I know that you know, like like other Berlin characters, like the characters in the other stories, you know, she's living to fight another day. Strays and Step are two stories by Lucia Berlin. You can find them in the collection A Manual for Cleaning Women. 
Peter Orner is the author of seven books, including the story collection, Maggie Brown and Others. His essay collection, Still No Word From You, Notes in the Margin, was a finalist for the 2023 Pan America Penn Diamondstein Spielvogel Award for the art of the essay. He holds the professorship in English and Creative Writing and is the Director of Creative Writing at Dartmouth College. This has been The Lonely Voice with Peter Orner from Texas Public Radio. Is there a story you'd like us to include in upcoming episodes? Send me an email at yvette at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme song. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides. Thanks for listening.